Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Hey all, Alex here. I am very much looking forward to this interview for so many different reasons, um, especially because this is in the lane of public policy, which is my background and I, I thoroughly enjoy. So today we are lucky enough to have Aliza Cohen, who is a research associate at the Drug Policy Alliance, also known as DPA. Um, and DPA is a New York City-based nonprofit org uh, that seeks to advance policies that reduce the harms of both drug use and drug prohibition and to promote the sovereignty of individuals over their minds and bodies. So super duper important. Um, the organization prioritizes redu and re reducing the role of criminalization in drug policy, advocating for the legal regu regulation of marijuana, and promoting health-centered drug policies. So Aliza, thank you so, so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Alex. Super excited to be here. Good. Um, so I thought it would be good to start off by sort of getting a little bit of an introduction of who you are, what you do, and then something super interesting to me is what brought you to work for DPA to begin with. Sure, absolutely. Um, so Drug Policy Alliance is an organization that's been around for about 20 years. Um, it was founded by a person named Ethan Nadelman, started as the Linda Smith Center. Um, so really started as an academic center um, in a recognition that our, our drug policies um, do not... <laughs> Uh, largely do not reflect um, our values, largely are not grounded in health, in human rights, and compassion, in science. Um, so we've been around for 20 years, and since then we've seen a huge shift um, in the drug policy landscape. Um, now over a third of people in the U.S. are living in a state where marijuana is legal. Um, we have over, you know, 65% of people believe that drug drugs should be decriminalized. Right. Um, over 80% of people believe that the war on drugs, drugs has failed. Um, so, you know, we've seen a real shift and still, even then, we're in the midst of a massive overdose crisis. Over 90,000 people died in 2020 alone. Um, so we still have a long way to go. Um, so I'm the research associate in our Department of Research and Academic Engagement. Um, so this is a fairly new department of Drug Policy Alliance. Largely, Drug Policy Alliance is a um, policy advocacy organization. Um, as you mentioned, we're based in New York, but we do work around the country, uh, the municipal, state, and federal levels. Um, but our department was started really as a, as a recognition that our policies are not grounded um, in the best evidence. They're often based in ideology and stigma. Um, so we, um, part of what we do is give our policy team the, um, the best and latest research so that they're armed with um, the evidence to inform our policies makers. And also part of what we do is engage academics with the pol with policy work and advocacy. Um, often academics are not given the tools um, to do advocacy work. Um, they're, they're taught to write in peer reviewed journals, um, right, not, right. not necessarily taught to write op-eds or do an interview, things like that. Um, so we do a lot of trainings for that. Um, and then we also know that they aren't rewarded for that um, as well. So we try to, um, you know, talk, talk to them, work with them about the importance um, of engaging with policy work. And also we know that academics want their, want people to use their research, right? For like sure. 
they want their research to have impact. So um, we'll work with academics on the front end to help formulate questions, to write in their research how their findings um, can influence policy, to go that that's extra amazing. Um, and show you know, that research can and should influence policy. So that's what um, I do specifically at CPA. That's fantastic. And Obviously, you're passionate about the mission. I am too. What brought you to DPA? Was this your first job out of school? What made you sort of find it? What What were you studying in college out of curiosity? Sure, yeah. So I studied sociology in undergrad. Um, okay. And yeah, largely I was interested um, in criminalization and, um, you know, mass criminalization and the war on drugs. Um, I think it, it's the war on drugs is such a pertinent um, invisible way that people are criminalized and punished in the U.S. Um, it's so apparent in our everyday. It, it happens through um, policing. It happens in our schools, and also it happens in these really insidious ways. Um, so yeah, I actually interned at DPA um, when I was an undergrad. Oh, nice! Okay. Going into my final year, and then left for a few years. And then when it, there was an opening, I came back. Um, so yeah, largely I view. You know, I'm interested in the broader project of um, ending criminalization and ending capitalism and abolition. Um, and I think ending the war on drugs is a way to get there. No, that's amazing. That's really, really cool. And and you just spoke about it too. You talked about, and, and what I really love about DPA's mission is it really centers around that science, health, compassion, and human rights, which is something that at the Albertus Project, we say, you know, the we got to humanize it. We have to have empathy and we have to have compassion. And we're running a social media initiative similar to Humans in New York called Humans of Addiction, right? People are more than their addiction. They're more than whatever they're going through. And it's so important, we think, to be empathetic and understand that human beings are human beings. So I think that that's really great, too. Um, and you've been talking about the decriminalization of drugs. Can you express to people who might not necessarily see that as very important why that's so important? Sure. So, you know, in this in this past year, over 90,000 people died of an overdose. Um, largely, that's driven um, by fentanyl and by polysubstance use. And I think there's um, long been a recognition and increasingly a recognition um, that criminalization doesn't work. Um, caveat to that is, you know, we know that a lot of the reason why this is now becoming a topic, um, you know, why drug policy, people want to view drug policy as a public health rather than a criminal issue right. um, is because the perceived drug user now is a white person um, mm. rather than in the you know 70s and 80s and 90s right. when the perceived drug user was a black person or Latinx or other person of color. Um, but still, you know, we know that criminalization has not worked. Um, over 450,000 people are incarcerated for a drug offense. That's 20% of people incarcerated right now are there for a drug law violation. Um, each year we have over 1.5 million drug arrests. Um, that's one drug arrest every 20 seconds on wow. average. Um, it's a um, waste of resources. And I think what you, what you bring is like, you know, a really good point. And I think a lot of that just comes to like an education piece, right? Like six months ago, I really did not know the first thing about addiction. I had one of my best friends pass away from it and now I'm sort of learning, but Without understanding and doing that deep-rooted, like, what is this? Why should I care? I think there's that stigma of, like, basically, like, people who do drugs are bad. Obviously, that is not the case. And I think once people, you know, that starts to get out in the media. And I think, um, you know, I used to work on Capitol Hill. And I think 
just that education piece is really important especially for our lawmakers because they're obviously legislating on things that i hate to say not all the time they know what they're talking about so i love what you guys are doing and basically trying to like advocate for you know what is the correct course of action and and on the congressional front i saw that um there were two representatives in the house um that talked about introducing the drug policy reform act can you give our listeners an overview of what this legislation is and basically what we can do on our end to encourage the passing of it? Sure. So the, the Drug Policy Reform Act is a federal piece of legislation that would remove criminal penalties for drug possession. That's sort of the first thing it does. Cool. Uh, it would also um, move regulation and oversight of drugs away from the Department of Justice, so away from a criminalized mm, approach love that. to health and human services, um, right, to recognize that if drug use as a public issue would do that. It would also um, create automatic expungement, right? Anyone who has drug convictions would have their records sealed. It would make people who are currently incarcerated for drug convictions eligible for um, a hearing um, to be able to be released. Um, it would also, you know, do a host, a host of things um, to eliminate collateral consequences, mass impact drug convictions. Um, so right now, having a drug conviction can make you ineligible for public assistance, it can make you ineligible for certain types of um, occupational life or federal aid. So it would remove those barriers as well. Um, so this, those are just a few of those things. And that really, that builds off um, of a piece of legislation we supported um, in Oregon, which was the decriminalization of personal possession of drugs. That passed um, in November of this last year, which was super exciting. Um, Oregon became the first state in the US to decriminalize drugs. Um, you know, this came off of a host of um, evidence from other countries, um, especially countries like Portugal, where drugs were decriminalized. Right. Um, infectious disease rates have gone down. Drug use has remained relatively stable. Um, and instead of arresting people, um, you connect people to services, provide them with the support um, they want. So it's really taking a harm reduction pro approach to drugs rather than a criminalized or abstinence-based approach. No, that's fantastic. I think excuse me, it's so important, um, as you just said, moving from the DOJ, which is the Department of Justice, to HHS, it's just the simple recognition, hey, there's a certain group that's the best to deal with this, and we're not going to treat this like a, hey, if you do drugs, this is your punishment, because why is anyone going to come forward and going to get help? If we make it a health problem, right, like cancer is whatever, any physical ailment that you can see, there's not a stigma around that. So I even think just that is is really, really great. Um, and then something you were just talking about is harm reduction, which I think for people who are new to this space, they're trying to figure out what exactly is harm reduction. I just did a whole post on that, but from the Drug Policy Alliance perspective, what is harm reduction um, and why has this been like sort of a helpful tool to people who are automatically going to continue to use drugs, but at least they're going to use it in a safe way? Yeah, sure. So you said it. I mean, harm reduction um, takes the approach of meeting people where they are. Um, it's it, it, Harm reduction does not assume that abstinence or non-use is the best approach to drugs. It recognizes that drugs always have been and really always will be a part of our society. As you mentioned, we all right. we all use drugs in some way, right? Whether that's illicit drugs, whether that's pharmaceutical drugs, whether that's caffeine um, or tobacco, right? There are a number of drugs that we use um, right. every day. And so what's different is um, how people are criminalized or how people are treated for it, right? I can use drugs with relative impunity. I'm a uh, white, uh, wealthy white woman, right? So I am not criminalized for my drug use. Um, but harm reduction 
getting back to it, um, you know, meets people where they are. It allows people to choose um, a path that works for them, whether that's trying to stop using drugs, whether that's to uh, use drugs in a different way or um, right. better manage right. their drug use. Um, and it really gives people uh, other tools like Daryl syringes or pipes or cookers to use drugs in a safer way. Um, and also I should say harm reduction is a radical movement that's decades old. Um, and it's really a movement that's based on the fact that like we need, we as people use drugs need to build what works for us. We have tools and the expertise and the power to care for ourselves or for our communities. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times the government isn't going to create that, right? Like we need to create right. those tools ourselves um, and create, create programs and practices that work for us. Right, um, so right. I don't want to lose the radical roots of harm reduction as well. Cool. No, that that's fantastic. And, you know, it's interesting because I didn't realize what, unfortunately, a controversial issue it is. When I was doing research trying to get into this, I was like, what's so controversial about giving people, you know, supervised injection sites? Right. I saw yep. in New Jersey that they've closed a bunch down yep. and they're trying to legislate on that. I'm like, what, what's going on? If people are going to continue to use drugs, let's at least support them and, and, and right. make it so it's safe, right? But so it, it's interesting that you say that, and I think that that's a good point. Um, one other thing that I, I wanted to chat about too was obviously it's apparent that grassroots movements are critical to catalyzing change in whatever form that might be. Um, in order to start talking about this, I think at an early age, childhood education is a really important piece. Do you guys do anything in terms of education, whether that's younger children, high school, um, so we can, so people in school can actually start learning this at a younger age versus experimenting in college, hearing the stigma from their friends? Sure. So we do a number of things. Um, we, we post a lot of educational resources and materials on our websites, uh, on our website. Um, we have a video series called matter of matters of substance, which um, are one minute, one minute videos that introduce people to drug policy and harm reduction terms and concepts. Cool. Um, we have a, a number of resources. We do use drugs. We have tips on safer partying and safer use. Um, we have tips on recognizing signs of an overdose. Um, so in addition to those sort of educational materials, um, we have a whole curriculum, a school-based curriculum um, based in research and harm reduction um, that's sort of an opposite of their approach, right? Instead of saying um, that abstinence is the only way and sort of forcing that on the kids, we've created a curriculum called Take First. Um, it's a reality-based drug education program for kids. Um, it's been implemented in uh, counties, uh, one in New York, wow. uh, one in San Francisco. Um, I think in, they're in the Bay Area, and the Bay Area has been piloted in five schools in New York, piloted in one school with over 88 kids. Um, so hopefully, you know, that curriculum is available for free. It has 15 lessons. It's available free to download. Anyone can download it, use it in the classroom um, or to learn. Um, and it walks you through, you know, what are drugs? What are the, the different drug classes? How do you recognize signs of an overdose? How can you use more safely? Um, of course, we say that the you know safest approach for kids is to not use drugs. But the reality is that we know that kids use drugs. We know right. that kids experiment. We know that kids hope use drugs to cope um, to heal from trauma for a variety of reasons. Um, so we want uh, students and young people have the best available information because um, young people are also people. 
can, yeah. are autonomous people that can make decisions for themselves as well. 100%. No, I think that that's, that's really, really cool. I'm going to look into that too. I didn't know that it was available for anyone to sort of view mm -hmm. online. And yeah. I think, I think, you know, education is really at the piece of all this because I think we can reduce stigma by just people understanding right, exactly. what it is. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that because, um, from a young age, we're taught that we need to be silent about drug or we right. need to be silent about any problems we have. And so, you know, the vast majority of people who do use drugs actually don't have a problem or don't go on to develop a substance use disorder, right? About 80% of people who use drugs do so non-problematically. But for the 20% of people who do, they're often deterred from getting help because mm -hmm. of fear of punishment, uh, fear of family or community members, yeah. you're getting kicked out of school, losing housing, a number of benefits. Um, so. Yeah, no, 100% agree. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to, to bring up was I saw, speaking about podcasts because you're on one right now, that uh, DPA has a really cool podcast that I was listening to called Drugs and Stuff. It's about drugs, harm reduction, mass criminalization, the drug war. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So our, um, our my brilliant colleague, Gabriella Mieres, wears a bunch of hats at DPA. Uh, cool. She's our graphic designer. She does video stuff. She also hosts our podcast. So our podcast is really a space for um, for us to highlight and uplift the work of people in our movement, of people who are squarely within the harm reduction and drug policy movement, but also sort of at the next people doing work around education in the drug war, people doing work around um, the impact of the drug war on child welfare and on parents. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's a free podcast comes out periodically every few weeks. Nice. Um, and they're, they're great resources, great tools um, to, you know, use in the classroom. Uh, but also yeah. really is ways to um, engage and learn about our movement. I was going to say that I found it a really cool way to sort of listen to what you guys are doing, the cool like status updates. So I thought it was fantastic. So I was going to say everyone who's listening to this one, go go check out theirs. Um, and as we're finishing, um, I wanted to give you the opportunity if you had any sort of final thoughts or any piece of wisdom that you could offer to the audience. What's something that they should know or check out? Sure. I mean, I think I would say two things. One, your audience knows this. Uh, people who use drugs are deserving of dignity and love and care and support. Um, 100%. Full stop, period. Um, and secondly, um, there are a, a myriad of ways to get involved, especially at the local level, right? There are harm reduction organizations in so many cities around the country. Get involved, volunteer at your local syringe exchange, um, vote in your prosecutorial elections. All these Agreed. things, like, there are ways, there's so yeah. many things that impact drug policy and harm reduction every day. Um, there's so many different ways to plug in. So find what's right for you. Fantastic. No, I think that that's amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for being on today. Really excited. And everyone, make sure to check out DPA's podcast and check on their website for all the resources. So we'll speak to you guys soon. Thanks. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following the Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.